I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3. We've been working our way through a a challenging section of the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 3, which uh, is a lengthy description of how the wrath of God is built or placed upon all human beings because of their sinfulness and unfaithfulness to God. At the beginning of those chapters, Romans 1 uh, through 3 and Romans 1.18, God gives kind of a... uh, a summary verse, Paul gives a summary verse of what is going to happen in verse 18 when he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so it's been our privilege, although uh, sometimes painfully so, to consider the condemnation of all humanity and the fact that all humanity is under the wrath of God. For Paul, this starts with the Gentile people, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Gentiles, because of their refusal to acknowledge and worship God, um, but instead uh, their determination to worship and serve themselves, are condemned by God. As a matter of fact, in response to this, God gave them over to dishonorable passions like homosexuality and lesbianism. And he gave them over to debased minds that engage in all manner of evil and wickedness and unrighteousness and then applaud those who rebel against God with them. After condemning the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not a Jewish person, uh, Paul turns his attention to the condemnation of the Jewish people in chapter 2. And uh, that's what we've been considering for the last several weeks. Chapter 2, Paul makes his case against the Jew by imagining a normal Jewish man. Uh, This man boasts in his possession of the law and in the physical sign of circumcision. As a young boy might boast in the possession of two balloons that he thinks makes him better than everyone else around him. More specifically, the Jewish man that Paul imagines here thinks that the law and circumcision exempt him from the condemnation that God will bring down on Gentile sinners. And so Paul argues then uh, with this Jewish man and he argues that Uh, Gentiles who actually keep the law of Moses and who have circumcised hearts, clean hearts, made clean by God, will condemn the Jew who disobeys the law and this Gentile person will receive praise from God. The net effect then of Paul's arguments in chapter 2 is that he deflates the sources of Jewish presumption, and pride. Now, as we come to the beginning of chapter 3, we come to a very difficult text, verses 1 through 8. matter of fact, I was tempted to just, you know, kind of put them with verses 1 through 20, and just to go quickly through them, and then get to verse 9. 
But today we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Very difficult text. It's a sort of passage that the more you look at it, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, Tom Schreiner, a great uh, commentator on Romans, declares that there are knotty problems that lie under the surface of this passage that make it quite difficult to understand. The old preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through the book of Romans about 50 years ago, and when he came to this passage, he said, this is the hardest passage in all of Romans, and perhaps one of the hardest in all the Bible. Perhaps you remember what Simon Peter said about some of Paul's writings. I'll read them to you now. I think he might even have this passage in mind. 2 Peter 3, verse 15, Peter... It says, uh, our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom God had given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, it's Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Even Peter struggled at times with Paul. And he says it's the ignorant... And it's the twisted who take what Paul says, misunderstand it, misuse it for their own purposes. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we get into chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, to dig in, asking God to reveal himself to you through this portion of Scripture and to help us. I want to start this morning by inviting you to stand, if you can, if you're physically able, And we'll read through Romans 3, 1 through 8 together and then ask God to help us with this passage. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand this passage together. Father, Help my brothers and sisters who are here today. Pay close attention to your word. Open our eyes to understand it. Not just to understand it, but to understand how we should submit to it. How we should come under what your word says. Reveal yourself to us, Father. Reveal yourself and your Son to us so that we can better serve you this week for your honor and your glory. Help us not sin, that grace may abound. But Lord, help us understand this text 
and then use it in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we get into this passage, I want to start off with a tool that I think will help you understand the passage. I think it will open up for you. This is one of the, probably the the best keys I can give you. I've spent a lot of time wrestling through this passage. uh, And uh, this this is perhaps uh, the the key for me that unlocks what's going on in Romans 3, 1 through 8. In these verses at the beginning of this chapter, Paul is continuing his criticism of the Jewish person, the Jewish person. And I believe that he's continuing his diatribe or dialogue with an imagined Jewish man, a normal Jewish man of his day. How this passage is different is, in this passage, the Jewish man actually begins talking. He begins talking. So far, he's just been reasoning with the Jewish man. Oh, oh man, uh, you call yourself a Jew in chapter 2. Now the man starts talking. And so this passage, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, contains objections to what Paul says about the Jews and answers from Paul. You see, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it's hard to see when you're reading in English sometimes. It's hard to see that Paul has two people arguing back and forth in this text. Paul and the debate partner. Okay, so knowing that foundational idea, sometimes what we're reading in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is coming from the debate partner, and other times it's coming from Paul, I think will really help us. Now, some scholars uh, like uh, John Stott and Doug Moo say that Paul's imaginary opponent is someone like Paul when he was a Pharisee. They say what you have in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 is Paul the Christian versus Paul the Pharisee. But I think it's better to imagine it in a little different way. If you look at the middle of verse um, 8, you have this little parenthetical comment. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, right? It seems that Paul's imaginary opponent in this chapter is talking the way some real Jewish people spoke about Paul. Consequently, I think it's better to think that the imaginary opponent is someone like the Jewish men and women who Paul reasoned with in the synagogues when he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not Paul the Christian versus Paul the Pharisee. It's Paul the Christian versus the Jewish skeptic of the gospel. The next hard question in this passage, and I'm just giving you some foundational things at the beginning here that I think will help you. And I've weeded out, believe me, I've weeded out a ton okay, that I could have said. The next hard question that we have to work through in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is when is Paul talking and when is the debate partner talking? Um, It seems to me that verses 1 through 8 are one paragraph with four sections to it. Okay, I'm going to give you a little chart. Don't panic to get everything off of this chart in your notes. Matter of fact, on Wednesday, I'll send it out to you as a church. Okay, so... The, the, uh, 
the, we, we got a new printer this week in uh, the church office, and it went down yesterday, so I couldn't give you a handout like I normally do. You know, new printer, imagine that. It goes down. doesn't work. So I will send this to you. Okay, there's something I want you to see, though. Okay. Um, I believe in verses 1 through 8, there are four sections. This is the four uh, rows of this chart here. And uh, the first the second column is entitled questions that the debater asks Paul. And then sometimes there's these little parenthetical comments that he gives. I speak in a human way or as some people slanderously charge with, with saying. But then to every set of questions, there are answers from Paul. And just a few things to make this simpler for us. There are double questions, in each case, two questions, that are followed by double answers. Except in Paul's last answer, which is simple. He just kind of swats away their argument and says, their condemnation is just. I'm done. It's like I'm done arguing with this guy, I imagine. All right? One other simple observation about this. The questions take usually one verse. So verse one are double questions. And the answer normally takes one verse. Verse two would be the first round of answers. Verse three, double questions. Verse four, double answers. Verse five, double, you see, you get, you get it? A pattern. All right? Now, one other big observation with this passage. The questions that the Jewish opponent brings against Paul are actually accusations against God. This will become clearer to you as we read throughout the passage so that Paul in some places will want to distance himself from the way this guy's arguing. Like in verse 5 when he says, I speak in a merely human way. It's like, I don't want anything to do with what this guy's saying about God. And along those lines, I think that this sermon, this text will be helpful for us. It'll be helpful. This passage will help those of us who have questions about a God who would condemn all men and women in their sin placing them under his eternal wrath against sinners. Sometimes we are like this Jewish opponent who are uncomfortable with what we learn about God in Romans. So we say things like this to kind of take the edge off. We say, he hates the sin but loves the sinner. He hates the sin but loves the sinner, loves them unconditionally. But men and women, God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners as their just judgment for refusing him and making a God out of their own being. And so now I want to look at the passage with you by examining the four rounds of questions that Paul's opponent raises. Uh, It all starts in uh, verses 1 and 2. And so since I don't have a handout for you, I've got four points today. And I'll, you'll know them. You'll know where 
actually making some distance in the sermon uh, when the black screen comes up and you see it. Okay, this is point number one. He's answering questions about Jewish advantage or advantages in verses one and two. So look there in your Bible. It says, and what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So in this first round of questions, you've got uh, the Jewish skeptic versus Paul the Apostle. Uh, the two questions he asks are uh, mentioned clearly here. The double questions are about a Jew and circumcision. And those questions spring right from what Paul said in chapter 2. Okay, so let me just point this out to you. Last week we looked at two paragraphs. Look at Romans 2.17, the very beginning. But if you call yourself a Jew... Then look at the second paragraph, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed a value. So this, imagine Jewish opponent asks questions about what is the advantage for the Jew and what is the value of circumcision? Okay, and, and so then comes Paul's answer, and we would think that his answer, I mean, if we're following his arguments so far in the text, we would think that his answer might be, well, frankly, not much. Or as uh, C.H. Dodd said, uh, he said kind of a logical way of answering the question might be none whatever, whatsoever. Instead, Paul answers that, those questions from the Jewish opponent in two ways. He says, uh, first, he says, much in every way. Although Paul has deflated their sources of Jewish pride, he acknowledges that the Jews have many advantages over the Gentile people because of their heritage and history with God. And then he begins to list them. Right? He begins to uh, list them. Stopping after the first or the most significant advantage that the Jewish people hold over Gentiles. See the expression there in, in the Bible... In verse 2, to begin with, this could be translated, first of all, right? What advantage do they have? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, which normally is a way of signaling that the author has several things he wants to, to, to articulate in a list. But if you're looking in your Bible, you're like, what, am I missing verses here or something? He doesn't give a list. He says, first of all, and there's no second or third or fourth. There'll be other lists like this, and he'll continue in chapter 9. Uh, here, however, he never finishes because he feels that this one advantage that he gives is so significant, there's no need to list any of the others. This is the preeminent privilege of the Jewish people. And Paul wants to highlight it even if he neglects their other privileges. So what is it? Well, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. A phrase that could be translated, the words of God. The great advantage that the Jewish people had as compared to the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or any other country was that they had the word of God. And men and women, I think we should not dismiss this very quickly here. This is the first and only advantage that Paul feels the need to bring up. The Jewish people were within earshot of the word of God. They had it read to them all the time. And might I say 
that the greatest advantage that anyone might have is the ability to have and hear the word of God. Do you have any idea how advantageous it is for us to hear the word of God and to have the word of God? We have the opportunity to hear God's word opened every Sunday morning and in Bible studies and in equipped classes and through personal study of our own copies of God's holy word. Yet some of us, I don't think, are much better than the Jewish people. Because we're about as excited about the preached word as we are the stewardess's message to us on a plane. You know what I mean. There's someone standing up there saying something, but I don't know what they're saying. If you're laughing, that brings me courage today. They actually are listening. Some of us just aren't interested in additional Bible studies or classes with others either because we really prefer anything else. Early lunches, snuggling up with our phone or a movie on the couch. Some some of us are as excited about the Word of God for our devotions in the morning as we are reading the list of ingredients on our cereal box. When I start preaching like this, sometimes I get, I get a challenge saying, that's oh, really legalistic. And I want you to know that's not my heart in this at all. Okay? I don't care as much whether you get your Bible study or Bible class from one of the things that we offer in our church. Although, it seems to be like a good idea to hear something that one of your pastors is saying or, or one of the things your pastors thinks would be helpful for you. I don't care as much where you get it, if it's sound. Okay. But I want you to examine your own heart. Do you love and want the word of God? Do you think like one sermon is enough a week? Are you in it? Are you studying it? I had a basketball coach who got the most out of us, and he would often tell us, he would say, you got to want it. Never really knew what that meant, but you got to want it. I ask you, do you want it? Are you eager to hear God's word? Do you have any idea how advantageous it is for us to hear God's word when so many people in our world don't have it? The Jews excelled all other people in the entire world because they had the words of God. And men and women, we have been given an even more complete edition of God's holy word, Old and New Testament. We are privileged, and to whom much is given, much should or will be what? Required. Dig in. Want it. These are the oracles of God. But enough legalistic preaching. Next we move on to the second question. Answering questions about God's faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4. The Jewish debater turns to the question of God and his faithfulness. Look at verse 3. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here the debate partner asked two questions. This is how I translate them. The first was just very simple. What then? Okay, and then the second one is more substantial. If some did not believe, will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here Paul's opponent acknowledges that the Jews were unfaithful in their covenant with God, but asked whether that means God won't fulfill his obligations to them. Will God bless Israel according to the terms that he has offered to them in his covenant? Will he be unfaithful to fulfill the promises he has made to them? Leads to Paul's answer, in twofold answer in verses 3 and 4. He starts out with a strong answer, could be no stronger. He starts with the phrase, by no means. Maybe you've heard preaching on this before. This expression is in the original is an emphatic negation. It's hard to reproduce in English. So I just want to give you what some of the translations have done with it. King James Version. God forbid. Christian Standard Bible. Absolutely not. New American Standard. May it never be. You see, Paul saves this answer for questions uh, when he's answering a ridiculous question and he does this he uses this phrase at least 10 times in Romans now to that short little statement no way Paul adds let God be true even if that means all human beings are liars I think the idea here is concessive God is to be seen as true even if that means all men must be viewed as liars. That's a good answer. If I'm choosing between all men, every human being, and what they're saying, and what God says, who's right for Paul? I'm going with God every time. Now, Paul will have more to say about the speech and tongues of men and women in verses 13 and 14. And it's not a pretty picture. Here, however, he emphasizes God is true. Speaking, I think, not only the fact that God is honest, but he's true to his word. When we come across this little phrase, the truth of God, uh, in the Old Testament, it emphasizes God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. In other words, I think the point that Paul be making, if he's quoting this in line with the Old Testament scripture, is God is reliable. He's trustworthy. He comes through on his promises. Let God be true. That's what God is. He's truthful. And speaking of the Old Testament, Paul grounds his views of a high view of God's trustworthiness with a quote from scripture in Psalm 51. Verse 4, and he does this at the end of verse 4. So if, you're, if you can even see this slide behind me, there's a quote from the Old Testament here. And we won't turn there because we already read that passage in our scripture reading today. Psalm 51. This psalm is perhaps the greatest penitential psalm of confession in all the Bible. 
It's the one that we read in our scriptures, or that we read uh, earlier today. And in this psalm, David confesses his grievous sins of adultery and murder in his affair with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. Early in the psalm, you remember what David does? He cries out to God to be cleansed and washed and for God to blot out all of his transgressions. Then he makes a declaration, and listen to this declaration. He declares that his sin was against God and him alone. Remember reading that? My sin's against you. You and you only have I sinned. And David does that so that God would be perceived as being right when he speaks and blameless when he judges. Because of David's sin and the impending judgment that he was going to face, David doesn't want anyone to think that God is unrighteous to judge him. God is blameless when he judges even the king of the Jews, David. God is blameless here when he judges the Jew, right? The king of the Jews. And David sees God as righteous when he judges him for his sin. I think that's what Paul's thoughts are in this passage as well. God is blameless. God prevails. He triumphs when he judges sinners. And so I take this last part of this quote that it's God judging sinners. God is not unfaithful. He's not unreliable when he judges his people who sin. All right, and so that's the second round of questions that leads to our third set. Look at verses five and six in your Bible. Questions about not only God's faithfulness, but now his righteousness. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way by no means, for then how could God judge the world? All right, so the double questions come in verse five here. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And, and is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? The way I understand these verses and what's going on here is uh, that things are beginning for the imagined objector, uh, objector when he questions Paul's premise, something that I think Paul believes. It seems to me that uh, the objector understands something that Paul actually believes when uh, he's describing the darkness of Human unrighteousness making the brightness of God's righteousness shine greater. So that first question, I think he's kind of picking on something that Paul actually believes. Okay, The sinfulness of humanity, when compared with the righteousness of God, it's uh, this amazing contrast. A few years ago, I gave an illustration about when I purchased a wedding ring for or, uh, an engagement ring for Carissa. That's been 25 years ago now, so I'll have to bury this illustration eventually. Okay. But I suggested, I, I told you what the jeweler did, right? He put that black velvet cloth underneath the ring on the counter, and then he put the ring there. And that back, that dark backdrop just really accentuated 
the ring, the beauty of the ring. Um, in this passage, I think the debater, though, twists Paul's understanding about human unrighteousness accenting God's righteousness when he asked the second question. Is then God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I mean, the argument goes like this. Is God acting unrighteously if he punishes people who are actually enhancing his reputation? And you're like, what type of person <laughs> argues this way, right? But uh, uh, perhaps some of us would. Is God acting unrighteously if he punishes people who are actually enhancing his reputation? Right, so Paul, Paul, if you say, like, the sinfulness of mankind accents the righteousness of God, makes it more spectacular, look more spectacular or something, then why would God judge us? Okay, and I, I'm going to quit here because there's going to be more arguments I'd like to get into now, but we'll, we'll get into it in a, in a little bit. And so really what this imagined Jewish opponent is doing is he is uh, pointing the finger back at God. And that is too much for Paul. So Paul distances himself immediately with a parenthetical apology. He says, I am speaking in a human way. From Paul's perspective, the last objection that this man offered is God being unrighteous, is disrespectful and out of place when talking about God. God's judgment is not something that should be called into question. And so for Paul, questioning the justice of God in it like this is absurd. It's reckless use of reason. By the way, this is how men and women think when they've lost all sense of reality when God has given them over to debased minds and dishonorable passions. And so after making that disclaimer, I'm speaking like a human here, Paul gives his answer. He starts with by no means, and we've seen this before. Absolutely not. Don't even think about it. Don't say that about God and his righteousness. Now, before we go on to the next part of his answer here, I, I just want to make an application for us again. I think it's not wrong for us, men and women, to ask big questions about God if we are doing so with a, in, in a genuine effort to learn more about him. But I want to, uh, I, I do want to caution us to be very careful when in asking our big questions, we actually might be blaming God or accusing him of doing wrong. I want you to remember what Paul says later in the book of Romans. He says, he is the potter. We are the what? Clay. Listen to his warning in Romans 9 verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? My challenge to you, my brothers and sisters here, is don't ever say, I can't believe that about God when reading from your Bible. Don't ever say that. 
You can say that. You could say, I don't, I can't believe in a God like that, uh, like the God that you've portrayed in your theology or something. But when reading the Bible, we can't ever say, I can't believe in a God like that. Don't play games with your theology and twist scriptural truth to fit something that you would approve. Sometimes when trying to win theological arguments, we try to put God in a box that does not conform with Scripture. And so Paul's first warning here and answer, I think, is a good one. By no means. But then he closes his answer with his own question. Right in verse 6, he says, Otherwise, how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? He explains that if the Jewish objector is correct, that it would be unrighteous for God to judge Jewish disobedience, then God would not, could not righteously judge any disobedience. And he argues here off a premise that he knows every Jewish person will hold. Every Jewish person believes God is the judge of the whole earth. You can write down this reference. I think he's alluding to it. Genesis 18, verse 25. You can write that down, look it up sometime. It's the passage where Abraham talks about the judge of the whole earth doing what is right. That's the question. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? And so the Jewish people know the judge of the whole earth is Yahweh. That premise is found in the law. And there are many other passages throughout the law and the prophets that speak of God judging the whole world. So Paul asks how God could judge the whole world in accordance with the law if Jews are somehow exempted. You get that? Otherwise, how could God judge the whole world? That leads to one last point, okay? Hey, we're making progress, right? Point four, I said I have four. Answering questions about condemnation and doing bad things, verses 7 and 8. Look there in your Bible. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? Well, the two questions I just read here at the beginning of the passage... Uh, are uh, it's a section where the debater gets personal. Before that, he's arguing about like our, us, the Jewish people. Now it's like me, my lie. And uh, then he asks, why am I being judged? With these two questions, his imagined opponent extends his critique of Paul's gospel, or at least his understanding of Paul's gospel, to the extreme. Listen closely as I try to formulate what I think the questions are meant to point out. I think the Jewish debater would say something like this. Paul, your gospel teaches that Jews are thoroughly and utterly sinful and condemned with no advantage and that that serves to highlight God's righteousness in judging sinners. But Paul, that's too radical for me. It's too radical for us. It's too pessimistic. It's not like our great Jewish theologians like Philo, who's optimistic about us and believes the Jews are exempt. And your theology, Paul, that 
everything abounds to God's glory, including lies, is off. If the Jewish person who lies should not be condemned as a sinner because his lie enhances God's glory, then people should simply expand this principle and do bad things so that the good things of glorifying God may happen as a result. If everything glorifies God, Paul, in some way or another, why not just let it all fly? Just go for it. Well, Paul's answer to that misunderstanding is clear. He starts first by saying these last accusations of what he preaches is not something, uh, not only that his imaginary opponent suggests, it's something that some Jewish people were actually saying about him. But he calls it slander and misunderstanding of his gospel. And so he responds. The people who take things this far and say that I argue for something that encourages lying or doing bad things, these people are ridiculous and they experience a just condemnation. He says their condemnation is just. just. Paul's done arguing. He kind of just swats away the accusation and claims that these Jewish people who reject his gospel and project outrageous caricatures on his beliefs will be justly condemned by God. As we close, might I encourage you with this understanding of this passage of Scripture. I hope it's been helpful to you to consider how Paul deals with this. Sometimes I come to difficult passages like this and I ask God, why? Like, this is so hard. So difficult to understand. Yet I think within them, uh, we can, if we apply ourselves, learn more about the true character of our God. His genuine faithfulness and righteousness to a people who rejected him, who despised him. And I trust that uh, as we look at this, we too will be thankful for his word that he's given to us. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful uh, for my brothers and sisters here who have believed in Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that we don't and shouldn't resort to such arguments as these that were used against Paul and his understanding of God and these arguments that blame God. I would pray for my brothers and sisters here in two ways, O Father, like I've been praying the last few days. One, that we would understand how advantageous it is for us to have the words of God. That we would see even today what we've read, what we've studied. These are, this is the word of the Lord. And although difficult, it is inspired, inerrant, holy. So I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would love your word, that they would want it. 
They would desire it more. And then I would pray for my brothers and sisters here who perhaps are going through suffering and are tempted to ask big questions about you, about God. Even to the point where they might suggest that you've done wrong. I I would pray, Lord, that they would learn from Paul's adamant, emphatic response against that. No way. No way. God, may we tell ourselves that even, even in the trial. Even in the, the terrible, difficult moments that we sometimes experience when we are accused or we are blasphemed or we are slandered against or we endure some great trial. May we never say, is God unrighteous to afflict me in this way? Pray for my brothers and sisters in that way. And then finally, I pray for anyone here under the sound of my voice who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. We have seen a very dark picture of your wrath and condemnation that comes crashing down. You do afflict your wrath upon sinners. God, this is nothing to mess around with. And I just pray for anyone here who has never believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and to save them from the consequences of their sin that they would believe on you today. Lord, help them to do so in this moment, we pray, through your spirit. If you are here today and you do not know Christ, may I implore you at this time to cry out to him like David did. Cleanse me from my sin. Make me clean. Blot out all my transgressions. And then run to Jesus who is your only hope for salvation. Believe in Jesus and what he has done so that you might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.